You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Elaine Shea Chow, a former Rona Jaffe graduate fellow at NYU and NYFA Artist Fellow. Elaine's Pushcart award-winning short fiction has appeared in Guernica, Black Warrior Review, Tin House Online, Plowshares, and The Atlantic. In Elaine's 2022 debut novel, Disorientation, a Taiwanese-American graduate student named Ingrid Yang discovers that the subject of her dissertation is a fraud. Xiao Wen Chao is not a Chinese-American poet, but is in fact a white man who built his career on stereotypes and yellowface. That book is the subject of our conversation today. Elaine, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I was really drawn to this book at first as a former graduate student myself, just by virtue of everything it was going to say about grad school. But it's so much more than that. And I just I'm really excited to get into it. Though disorientation is a work of fiction, it has some basis in reality. Were there particular people or incidents that inspired the story? Absolutely, yes. So the greatest inspiration came from this poet named Michael Derrick Hudson. In 2015, he published a poem under the name Yi Fen Chao, which he took directly from a real living person. This was a Chinese classmate he grew up with, a woman. And uh, he submitted it to a diversity issue of an anthology. So it was specifically for poets of color to celebrate them. And shortly afterwards, he very proudly outed himself uh, as if to say, look, I proved that we white men have it rough out here. Mm, delightful. You know, all I had to do was change my name and you see how easy it is for them. It was It was very bizarre. And he disappeared afterwards because I think you know, the backlash was so strong from not just the Asian community, but so many people to say, how could you, you know, assume this identity without being of that identity and to assume that you don't have privilege as a white man. And I was very enraged, particularly because he took my last name. So it was an extra, it felt a little personal for some reason, because (laughs) Growing up, kids did make fun of me for my last name. And it was like, how how do you take something you didn't suffer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in all of these stories, there's such a sense of entitlement that it's crazy how entitled you have to be to do something like that. Absolutely. So he really provided, I think, that inspiration and outlet for the rage I felt about um, this identity theft. But at the same time, just a few months before, Rachel Dolezal was outed as not a black woman, in fact, yeah. but a white woman. And and she captivated me. She fascinated me at a level that Michael Derrick Hudson, I mean, his ruse was, you know, let's say a lower level. Yeah. Uh, but Rachel had been li- wearing blackface. She went to tanning salons and, you know, spray tanners yeah. and burned her hair to pass as black. And so that really inspired me to, to go a step further and ask if this fictional poet I created, Xiao and Chow, found himself becoming so famous that he could no longer hide his identity what would he do to keep that fame? Would he go so far as to wear actual yellow Mm. face? And Rachel was such a fascinating character because to this day, she hasn't, she won't admit that there is a ruse. She's 
believes she's Black. She says she's transracial. And for a while, I contemplated making John Smith's character. He's the the person who pretends to be Xiao and Xiao. So I contemplated making him like that and just sort of going to the grave saying, I'm Chinese. My soul is Chinese. I was born a Chinese man. You know, all these right. things. Um, but then I thought it was more fun to just have him be almost a kind of troll, someone who really... Yeah, a con artist. Yeah, yeah. You can't pin him down. You don't really know what his motivations are, if they're self-serving, if he's just sort of likes to mess with people. I thought that was a little more interesting. But yeah, there is a version of the novel I wrote where he's more like Rachel Dolezal and believes in transracialness. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought up Rachel Dolezal because I think one of the things that I found myself thinking about a lot while I was reading the book is that while, of course, incidents of white people masquerading as non-white aren't new, nor are they exclusive to academia, it feels like there's something about academia that is almost extra hospitable to this kind of deception. And I was curious if you had thoughts on that. Like, Why do you think that might be? Right. Because in recent years, we keep having more of these incidents come out of academia, like uh, Jessica Krug. Yeah, I I can't remember exactly what her last name is. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, And there was another professor um, in Chicano studies who it turns out had been passing as Chicana and and is a white woman. But Jessica passed briefly as black, but then she turned herself into like Afro Latina. Mm-hmm. And right. So all of these stories come out of academia and all of them, all these people were professors in the department that they were trying to pass as, if that makes sense. So yeah. I, they had to publish in that uh, you know, academic subject. So I think there's a lot of anxiety around who gets to be an quote unquote expert. Mm -hmm. in a subject and who has the right to tell these stories. So I don't know, is it because academia is so cutthroat and there are so few opportunities to get tenure? Maybe they thought to get a leg up, they have to actually pretend (laughs) to be yeah. The the subject that they're studying, or or maybe there's even a sense of white guilt that, well, am I taking away an opportunity from a, you know, Afro-Latina scholar? And so to make myself or to assuage my guilt, I'm going to pass. Well, that's just even worse. I'm not really sure what the psychology. Right, right. But definitely this anxiety, right? About identity as the ultimate uh, marker of expertise or, or, you know, you can ownership, I suppose. Yeah. One thought that I had is that, right, academia, at least Western academia, I can only really speak to it in the United States, is... It's sort of built on a fundamentally extractive model to begin with, right? I was a graduate student in linguistics, and as a linguist, you make your career analyzing languages. You know, it could be your own language, but realistically, I I don't know that many people who make a career these days primarily looking at English. Mm -hmm. And there is just a kind of, yeah, there's there's a real extractive quality to that. And I think people who are who are thoughtful about it are trying to imagine ways that you can approach it in a way that isn't fully extractive. But you see that sort of all through academia. And so it, in some ways, it doesn't even feel like it's such a huge leap to mm-hmm. what some of these people are doing. And so I, I can kind of understand how it ends up being a place where they feel like they can hide and get away with that. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that the, the frightening thing is there are more who haven't been unearthed. Yeah. So I don't know, we'll see. You know, time will tell. We're going to hear more of them coming out. But I'm sure yeah. there are some, you know, masquerading or they just are doing that whole, you know, I, I'm 116th of this. Oh, yeah. Or have, you know, the right to claim that identity. So, yeah, I'm sure it's not over. Yeah. I remember reading, too, that in sort of talking about some of the inspirations for this book, that the character of Stephen, who is Ingrid's fiance, who is a Japanese translator who does not speak Japanese, um, had some inspiration in Deborah Smith's translation of The Vegetarian by Han Kong. Could you speak about that? Yeah, yes, yes. When uh, The Vegetarian won all those prizes, I think this was also around 2015, yeah, right? 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, yeah. I remember my friends, especially my Korean friends, and I just being sort of flabbergasted that a certain translation was being awarded when it had so many errors. So my Korean friend was pointing out things like right foot, left hand, like things that are very simple mm. or mistranslated. And I think to friends who've read the Korean version in the original form that there it's just it's a different text. Yeah. And um, I think that happened because this translator was not versed in the language in a way that like hadn't, I guess you could say mastered it, but also mm -hmm. I don't think had a lot of familiarity with Korean culture right. and Korean history. And I think part of translation, it's not just linguistic, right? As I'm sure you, you know this, a language is cultural and it is formed by cultural mores and, and these nuances of language are so tiny and hard to translate. And I think that just really struck me. You know, I'm not I'm yeah. not trying to put Deborah Smith on a on a stake or anything and say, how dare you? Right. It, all that happened was this was something that occurred in the real world that really struck me. And I kept thinking about it and ended up creating a character who uh, is not Deborah Smith by any means. But I thought it was interesting to explore, you know, a translator who does not have any grasp of the language and is using a, a thesaurus but sort of just writing it himself, you know, using right. the source text as... Almost as inspiration. Exactly, right. to then write his complete own text because he makes huge changes to the text. And that was something that I was inspired by, um, reading an, a, an article about Mirakami's different translators mm -hmm. and how they made a lot of authorial decisions to cut huge portions of books and and to just change a lot that we don't yeah. know we have no idea things in his books have been changed if you know you're an english speaker so that to me was really interesting that these translators can act like mediators invisible as if you know they're just they're just pure portals that you know transform one one language into another one without any interference. Totally. And so I was fascinated. It felt like I'd been lied to, whereas I had thought that was what translation was. And then to realize, no, translation is a creative act. It must be by necessity. And the sort of pure overlay that that assumption is false. And I thought, well, it's so interesting to ask with the character of Stephen, what does he believe about Japan and how does his translation belie that? So he you know, has a very limited understanding of what an Asian woman can be. And yeah. so 
he portrays Azumi's character in this very one-dimensional sort of sex toy way. And then we learn the actual text. It portrays her much more fully, more three-dimensionally. So I want to turn a little bit. Um, though I think most of the action and disorientation stems from Ingrid's revelation that Shao and Chao is a fake, the emotional heart of the novel, in a lot of ways, is the way that that discovery challenges her comfortable, assimilated life and forces her to face not just the ways that she's been deceived by white men in her life, but the ways that she's kind of been complicit in that and deceived herself. Do you see these things as connected? Mm, the way she's deceived herself and the way she's been deceived by others. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful question, by the way. I think that's very smartly put. I think something I wanted to explore was how if a certain narrative has been shoved down your throat your whole life, at a certain point, you don't know where it ends and where you begin. Mm. You know, Do I believe in, in this? Am I really like this? Or... Have I been conditioned to believe this? Have I been yeah. conditioned to think this is all I can be? And so for Ingrid, I think her ultimately her liberation from these narratives is really tied up in what others have forced on her that she in turn has imbibed. It's very subconscious, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think I wanted to show you can't untangle those threads easily. I think so many of us walking through life we we don't really know how things our parents would say yeah. the, the tv shows we'd watch the news we would read the friends we have how all of those things are constantly mixing in with our understanding and uh, not being able to sort of pull them apart and know am i the source yeah. of this or am i not and so i wanted to show that ingrid is not inherently submissive. I think because that narrative was pushed on her from all angles, but definitely through men like Michael and Stephen, yeah. um, that I think for so long, she just accepted it and didn't even dare ask, am I not submissive? And what, what lies on the other side of that? Because that would be so terrifying to uncover. And I think that's what yeah. takes her so long through the novels. We could see her constantly sort of peeking out under the covers, but then she'll pull them over her head again. And I know so many readers yeah. are like, Ingrid, just snap out of it and face the world. That's such a, I feel like that's such a realistic portrayal of what that process looks like. It's messy. It's not linear. You have to, every, every time you uncover something new, you encounter all these scary truths that I think it makes sense that she'd want to put her head back under the sand a few times. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I did want to portray it's it's not if if only it were so easy, right? I mean, all of us yeah. would probably have less problems, but I think yeah, it takes many years to unlearn. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program on being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Elaine Shea Chow, whose 2022 debut novel, Disorientation, tells the story of Ingrid Yang, a Taiwanese-American grad student who realizes that her academic life is built on a lie. 
One thing that I thought about a lot reading this book is is the way that assimilation serves as a sort of false idol of safety and security. And I think one of the things that disorientation does really well is deconstruct that. Right. It shows all of the ways in which Ingrid believes that she is creating the safe, comfortable life for her that is not, in fact, safe or comfortable mm-hmm. um, and and really pieces that apart. And I, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that. Um, how do you understand Ingrid's impulses toward assimilation? And is that something that you have experience with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wanted to push against the idea that total assimilation in America leads to happiness or just leads to thinking, you know, this is this is me making, especially if you immigrate here with that idea. In the Asian community, the model minority myth is so tied to this idea that we have to assimilate so much into whiteness to succeed or feel safe. Um, to to amass even I don't even think power, but just what happens then is uh you 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 destroy yourself. I mean, I think yeah, sort of trying to bleed into the vast whiteness of America is is yeah. so toxic in it of itself. And I was thinking about it a lot with the Monterey Park uh, shootings that happened not too long ago. I think what really broke my heart was thinking, you know, these Asian immigrants, had they not come to America, I don't think would have ever, ever had access to guns just because in Asian countries that, well, they're outlawed. And they're, they're extremely hard to yeah. procure. You can if you are, you know, deep in criminal life, but the gun culture is not celebrated there. And that is something that was assimilated it's such a big part of American culture. And and I found that heartbreaking. And I think we've ha- had to ask more and more recently, is immigration to America, what, you know, was it worth it? Mm-hmm. And what you give up, what you, you sacrifice, what you forget, is it worth it? And for so long, we had that narrative pushed down our throats that, of course, because America is the greatest country in the world. But I mean, look at what happened to these people who immigrate here and then absorb these ideas about, I don't know, American freedom or guns. Because lots of Asian immigrant communities are turning more and more towards the right and they feel that those ideals will protect them. So it's so ironic, right? They come here, they don't feel safe. But then sort of the things that aren't making them feel the safe. They yeah, it ends up being what they gravitate toward. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think with Ingrid's character, I wanted her to, you know, it's a much more low stakes version of that where she's just sort of imbibed this belief that having this cozy little academic tenure job and being with the sort of white man Stephen is, is, yeah, the key to happiness and the American dream for her. And I wanted that to just slowly crumble before her eyes. And I don't know if she asked this outright, but I think something that she does have to confront maybe even subconsciously is, would I have been happier if my parents never left Taiwan? I think for a lot of third culture kids and whatnot, that is something that shocks a lot of parents who immigrated here when they hear their child say, I wish you didn't. 
you brought me here as a child. I was bullied in a way I never would have. Like maybe, yes, I would have been bullied in Asia, but I was bullied in this very specific way. I just watched this film last night, Rice Boy Sleeps by Anthony Shim. It's an indie film that came out pretty recently and it, and it tracks that. It's so, it's such a devastating, I think, case against immigration because it shows this single Korean mom moving to Canada, a pretty like small town where her son faces incredibly violent bullying mm. and he tries to protect himself but then only he's punished by the school and and I just couldn't help thinking as I watched it if he never come here he wouldn't have this wouldn't have happened to him and if we go even further I, I think a lot of uh, transracial adoptees have also this belief that it's very controversial but it's becoming more and more popular and outspoken yeah that they just wish they were never brought to this country. They don't believe in adoption as this sort of the savior narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, I think, new questions that we have to ask. I know they're uncomfortable to ask. And I think they all threaten that mythical power America has over so many um, countries still to this day. But yeah, we got to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're questions worth asking for sure. So I think this is probably, before we get too far into into the weeds, it's probably a good time to have you read a little bit from the book. Before you do, can you set up what you're going to read for us? Yes. So I'm going to read from the very beginning of the novel. Um, So this is the first time we meet Ingrid. We'll see that she's a PhD student at this fictional university I made up called Barnes University, and it's set in a fictional town, Whittlebury, in Massachusetts. Okay. On September 9th, Ingrid Yang could be found cramped over a desk, left foot asleep, right hand swollen. She had Xiao and Chow on the mind, so much so she felt his illusions and alliterations leaking from her every orifice and puddling beneath her. She was sucking on the ends of her hair, then sniffing the damp locks before picking at the eczema patches on her ankles. Her aching eyes were marbled pink from a sleepless night punctuated by unnecessary trips to the bathroom. She simply idled on the toilet with her eyes closed, nothing going out of or into her body. Even on the rare occasions sleep visited, Ingrid was plagued by a constant pinching pain in her stomach. Sometimes she imagined, hopefully, that she was developing ulcers. No one could fault her for failing her dissertation because of stomach ulcers, could they? Pneumonia then? What about mono? That how to contract these illnesses was another question entirely. The black market was the obvious choice, but then again, so was an undergrad frat party. Pulling her laptop close, she searched fastest way to contract mono, followed by top 10 deathly illnesses. No, Ingrid Yang was not doing well. She was 29 years old and in mounting debt from her undergraduate degree. Four years ago, she had passed her comprehensive exams and started her dissertation. This year, the eighth and final year of her PhD, her funding would run out. An unhappy situation in any circumstance, but compounded by the expiration of her student loan deferral. Somehow, in spite of all this financial doom and gloom, this was also the year she had to produce 250 pages on Xiao and Xiao. And not just any 250 pages, they had to be shockingly original and convincing enough to pass muster with her exacting advisor and an even more exacting dissertation committee, enough to secure her the prestigious postdoc fellowship established in Xiao and Chao's name. But after hundreds of hair-pulling hours spent at the archive, 
All she had accomplished was 50 pages of scrambled notes on Chow's use of enjambment, plus an addiction to antacids. Make no mistake, it wasn't like she hadn't tried. She had come up with ideas of her own. The eternal inner conflict between Eastern selflessness and Western individuality in Chow's poetry, the immigrant's assimilation into American society, as endless negotiation in Chow's poetry, Chow's poetry and the impossibility of cultural translation, Chow's poetry and the longing for intrigably lost motherland and mother tongue, etc. The problem was some other scholar had, of course, snatched up the idea first. No other Chinese-American poet had been so widely read in America, had been so consistently reprinted year after year. The so-called Chinese Robert Frost was taught to students in high schools and colleges all across the country, and occasionally in gifted middle school classes. In every bookstore and library, a good 12 inches of space was reserved for his prolific work. Even those who wanted nothing to do with literature, who couldn't tell you Chow's name, much less how to spell it, had bumped into his poems. In dentist offices, middle-class homes, and ethnic restaurants, his quotations adorned boxes of tea, wall decorations, and watercolor calendars. Xiao and Xiao was beloved, more so after he passed away from pancreatic cancer seven years ago. What could Ingrid possibly offer on the late canonical poet that no one else had? She had memorized Chow's poems backwards and forwards, rifled through innumerable archive boxes, worn out her copy of his biography, read incomprehensible secondary sources, read them a third time. She had even attended a pricey international conference in New York in the hopes of gently plagiarizing some Argentinian or Swedish scholar's paper. When she was still a TA, she had surreptitiously assigned her undergrad's essay prompts that fed directly into her own research. She had let her other interests fall to the wayside, not to mention healthy eating and exercise. She had postponed her wedding for another year. From the moment she woke up to the moment she pretended to sleep, Chowian sonnets, villanelles, odes, and elegies consumed her. What more could she do? Hire a ghostwriter? Alas, Ingrid was approaching the problem as though it held a logical solution, but her dissertation woes were preordained from the start. She had never wanted to research Chow in the first place. So I think one thing that really comes through in that reading and, and throughout the book is just how funny it is. Humor is sort of pervasive. This is a satire. But I understand that early drafts of disorientation were not that. They were much more sort of serious and dramatic and, and dark, I guess. What inspired you to transform it into a satire? And what was that transformation process like? Right. Oh, thank you, Clara. So my very first envisioning for the novel, and this was before I started writing anything, this was before I even had heard of, the, well, before the Michael Derrick Hudson incident happened, I was just outlining a novel that would take place on a campus. It did have a character named Ingrid Yang. She was a professor in her 50s, married to a white man. And my idea for this novel was she was teaching a class and two of her students were involved in a sexual assault case. And she kind of becomes pulled into it. And the case makes her question her own marriage and her own sort of desires and relationships to Asian men and white men. So that was the, the very first idea. And I hadn't written anything. Then 
Michael Derrick Henson happened. <laughs> and I said, I must write about mm-hmm. this. You know, it, it just really consumed me. And I started thinking to myself, all right, well, Ingrid's a professor. I'll have her research this poet who turns out to be, you know, a white man masquerading in yellow face. As I started plotting it out more, it just, the the sexual assault case fell away and, and it mm. became more about uh, how, how the yellow face scandal, you know, awakens her in a lot of ways and forces her to confront her marriage, yes, her relationships to white men and Asian men, but also to herself. So I outlined for a long time. And in that version, I think I could tell it was, it was not as dark as my original imagining, but I still at that point didn't think of it as satire. Then I sat down to actually write the most terrifying step, right? (laughs) And I was like, what is this voice? This voice emerged on the page that was so snarky. It was, so this was the very first version, which is not the published version. I wrote three different ones from uh, scratch. And so, and so this first one um, just had a very opinionated narrator who, you know, you're you're almost wondering, like, who are you, right? You're yeah. supposed to be omniscient, but you clearly have a very strong... And I think I was just... This voice emerged because I was angry when I was writing mm. it. And I think anger is often sublimated into humor because it makes anger more bearable and it makes anger not something that you necessarily have to suffer through, but that you can laugh at. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I learned, you know, to write to make myself laugh and and hope yeah. that laughter would translate to other people's sense of humor. Although it's very funny and sometimes readers will say, oh, I thought <laughs> that part was so funny and I didn't even intend for it to be funny or something I think was very funny. I, I don't know <laughs> I have the impression that's just comedy in general. But I, I'm curious to go back as you you were talking about the sort of relationship between humor and anger. And I know you've talked extensively in other interviews about the the role you see anger playing in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if writing from that angry place, something that is more humorous, was that catharsis for you? Was it what was what was the what was the feeling you got from that? What was the sort of how how did that help you process what you were writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, catharsis for sure. I think it it was a way for me to productively channel anger. I think had I written that version that is non-satirical, deeply dramatic, I think I may have lost my mind. I may have I I probably would just be very unwell. <laughs> Glad you didn't write it then. (laughs) But humor and especially satire, and and you know, I still hesitate to use that word because so much of the book, down to dialogue, is taken from real life. Um, Almost every wild thing that happens in it, including wearing yellow face in real life, all of it has happened at some point in American history. So that said, satire, I think, is very powerful for marginalized writers because we are marginalized in real life we move through the world feeling powerless and a lot of times even though you'd love to say that zinger back to you know someone who's harassing you often for our own safety we can't you know I've been in situations where I'm been harassed and it's I'm alone it's at night and to you know protect myself I 
it's devastating, but I have to shut my mouth and, Mm. and, you know, just walk as fast as I can because the other option is I could anger someone to the point of them physically hurting me. And so I think when you walk through the world holding in this, this rage that hasn't been able to come out, which happened to me for a long time because I lived in France in, in often like rural parts of France where these incidents accumulated. And sometimes if I, you know, if it was daytime or if I was with other people, I would feel safe enough to, you know, especially as my French got better to like cuss someone out in, in French. (laughs) But a lot of times I had no choice, but to hold it in. And I think on the page, that was my chance. I'm safe. When I'm writing, no one can hurt me and I can say the things um, that I've been burning to say. And so there was part of, I think, the the personal baggage, right? The things I've gone through um, because I I was in in, in sort of these weird situations where in, in one town that I was teaching English in, like for some of the children, I was the first Asian person they had ever laid eyes on. And people, wow. you know, children would point at me and be like, and tug on their parents' arm, like, wow. oh, like, oh my God, look, you know, like I was like in a zoo or something. And so because of these particular, I, I, I don't know, I guess sometimes I just wonder if, yeah, if there's sort of this feeling of, oh, you know, you exaggerate or these hangups, you know, Asian Americans your age don't have anymore. And it's like, no, I think it, it really depends on where you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. All that to say, um, yeah, satire was really empowering in that way to deal with, I think, the you know personal baggage I had been carrying, but also just years of having to read and watch media where disorientation is told in the inverse, where basically the white, usually a white man savior goes to Asia, marries or or it's just his mistress has, you know, as in like Madame Butterfly has a love affair with an Asian woman and she's subservient and exists to please, his, you know, exists to please him. And then, uh, well, like in Madame Butterfly, she killed herself mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's how devastating apparently the loss of this white man's love is. And so there are so many films and books that enforce this narrative to the extent where it yeah. is so damaging and has very real repercussions. I wrote about it in an essay, but there like all, a lot of white men who travel to Asia to live and teach English and whatnot go there specifically because they believe Asian women are, you know, yeah. that stereotype you see in these sort of media. And so disorientation was me also trying to enact revenge and to reframe revenge as something that is the closest we can get to justice or accountability because I can't go back in time and ever right. meet, you know, the man who wrote first Madame Chrysanthemum that then became Madame Butterfly. I can't, you know, uh, Apocalypse Now is in the world. Miss Saigon is in the world. I can't turn back time, but on the page, I can finally write my version. I can write yeah. the version where this white dude is not some heroic savior that the audience is supposed to identify with, where the Asian people aren't, you know, faceless set pieces in the background to kill and and rape. We are now, you know, you you know, you're supposed to identify me. I'm the protagonist. Yeah. And, <laughs> and these guys are 
you know, basically the villain. And that was so delicious to me and fulfilling. <laughs> I can't recommend it enough. Right? <laughs> you know how many specific hangups that, you, you know, that you longing to write your version. Um, fiction is such a healthy way to explore that. It really is this playground, this blank slate for you to write a reality that you can't experience in real life. That's a great answer. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6, on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Elaine Shea Chow, whose 2022 debut novel, Disorientation, tells the story of Ingrid Yang, a Taiwanese-American grad student who realizes that her academic life is built on a lie. We have talked a lot about the mediocre white men in this book, so I would like to turn to what I think is, um, I mean, really compelling, but also it seems to be really compelling to every interviewer who has ever talked to you, which is the the sort of trifecta relationships between Ingrid, her best friend Eunice Kim, and her academic arch rival Vivian Vo. And I was particularly interested in the way that each of those relationships changes over time. They almost seem to act as a barometer for Ingrid's political awakening. Mm. Can you talk about these characters and the ways that they both shape and reflect Ingrid's evolution? Oh, yeah. I think I created Eunice and Vivian. They were really important to me in showing the rather political division Mm. (laughs) amongst the Asian American community that I hadn't seen in book form, really. And even as I say that, you know, Ingrid, Eunice, Vivian are still pretty close compared to what is actually out in the world of, you know, like a hardcore Trump supporter. Those are, they're definitely out there. I I guess Timothy is the closest character who kind of gets to that. But nonetheless, I wanted to show like, even if you are liberal leaning, which is uh, what Ingrid is and what Eunice is too, there's still division and there is still sort of a lot of defensiveness in that space Mm -hmm. of, oh, are you doing enough? Are you doing too much? Are you a sellout? Are you a traitor, as Vivian calls Ingrid at some point? And it's, it's funny, I think, us all being more or less on the same, you know, quote, side of leading in progressive ideals. But even in that space, and, and I was on, for example, Asian Facebook groups, where you would see this division in politics emerge. And so with Vivian and Eunice, I wanted to show those nuances, you know, that Eunice and Ingrid are very similar, but Eunice does not have the racial hangups Ingrid does because she grew up in San Gabriel Valley, which as you probably know is, is, you know, very Asian and her idea of what was popular at school was so different from Ingrid's idea And I hadn't seen that reflected where, you know, I've met what we call the Asian baby girl, (laughs) like when I was in college, who were from the SVG, sorry, SGV, and (laughs) had blue contacts and dyed hair. And, and, but it was not some kind of like self-hating anything. I know someone who's just said, well, I'm just trying to look like my favorite anime character. And I'm like, fair, fair. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to show that they're very similar and yet 
that Eunice does have this comfort with herself that Ingrid never had. And I, I found that especially interesting. And in when Ingrid starts to uncover all of the stuff about John Smith and she sort of it's like she she kind of like switches alignments where she's been super mm. close to Eunice and then she moves and becomes more close to Vivian and Eunice feels understandably left behind because I, I think Ingrid doesn't really know how how to handle her. And yeah. when they when yeah. they finally have a conversation about it, I felt like that was something that really came through is that the hang ups that ingrid had about you know i have to identify with this friend or this friend mm. with this archetype or that one eunice doesn't have those she can just sort of move between more easily yeah exactly i think eunice is great as just someone in ingrid's life where she can see oh that's what it looks like to be at peace with yourself mm. and even the sort of sexual you know choices in uh, eunice makes in her uh, personal life she's very chill about you know she's not trying yeah. to read too much into it and i think for ingrid that becomes unfathomable as you know everything comes out about steven yeah and then vivian i love vivian so much and i really hope that comes through in the novel because i think in earlier drafts of, of this version where people are like do we like vivian it's like, yes, we love Vivian. Vivian is just very tired and overworked and, and has taken on too much. And I wanted to show from her perspective that having this dedication to activism in the sense of all that matters is basically, I think it's easy to fall into a sort of overly intense way of dealing with injustice in the world because it's so painful to shoulder that, that it can consume you emotionally and then you have no space for yourself and so i think when we see vivian being a little intense as we might say i think what's underneath it is someone who is coping so hard who feels powerless and unable to stop injustice and so the only way she can deal with that is to go so hard in one direction and then also sacrifice uh, wh where does she fit in? Where does she yeah. want as a person and an individual? She sort of let these ideals overtake her. And in her character, I, was, I think I was just exploring a lot of myself when I started getting into activism and felt so guilty about things. <laughs> yeah. I just hadn't known like, oh, I've been complicit in this way and I didn't know this about American history and I've failed sort of other people of color by not, you know, being an ally, not knowing these things that then you, you compensate so much. Yeah. And then it, it, it makes it, you extra loud and extra intense in those early days. Yeah. Exactly. And I was like, oh my God, I've, I've now become that person in a Facebook group, like shouting at these other Asian people because they don't a hundred percent believe it, you know, exactly what I believe. And then it's more recently that I've, you know, had to come to terms with like, is that the way forward? Because what if I just push them onto like a 4chan forum? Like, is that what I like? I'm like, ban this person from this group. And it's like, oh, great. Well, no. so they have no wow. access to being around like an Asian community. And asking tough questions and figuring things out for themselves. So it, it takes an act of grace, right? And generosity yeah. to put aside, I think, proving that our politics, like, I believe in this and you're wrong. And just being like, where is this person coming from? And this is very true for older immigrant communities where it's so easy for me to like, I was at a protest in Flushing where it was really striking. It was a pro NYPD protect the police protests on one side where 
almost everyone was in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, Asian immigrant. And then we showed up to sort of be the anti-protest <laughs> and to say, you know, we, we are anti-NYPD and we want to abolish the police. But and there was so much anger. Yeah. And, and to the point where the older, I guess, I, I suppose also activists, you know, were shouting at us. And and at one point, the organizers were like, just shout back. I love you. And oh, mm. I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it was like, it's so easy to just shout back and be like, you are wrong. Your politics are wrong. Yeah. You're, you're on the bad side, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that we decided in that moment to say, just say, I love you was so powerful. And at the end of the day, you know, we were there for many hours, but people were translating and just listening to what they had to say. Yeah end of the day they were just terrified they were so scared of losing yeah. you know the, the small foothold they had built in this country and and these sort of right-wing politics had led them to believe that was the only answer that that safety yeah. that the police will always protect you when you know we've seen that that's that's not true yes. police have actually killed asian people and his throughout you know american history and it's just not well known uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think I don't even remember what where what the question. That's okay. Like, no, I actually think you've you've given me a way to segue nicely. So we were talking about the the sort of trifecta of Asian women, <laughs> but I think there's two other women, Asian women in this novel who don't get talked about as much in the conversations you've had. Who I would really like to talk about, and that is Ingrid's mother and uh, her advisor, Michael's wife. Who is uh, is that? CG can. Uh, I say Sishi, but I okay. think I might be mispronouncing <laughs> because there's a famous, um, I, th I think she was an empress I th and I think she's, okay. it's pronounced a little differently, but in my, in my head, I say Sishi. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the two of them because they are generationally removed from Ingrid, Eunice and Vivian. And I think they each have very different perspectives on sort of everything that's going on, but also very different circumstances. Jean, I think, yeah, it was important for me to show a healthy, I do think they have a healthy relationship. It's yeah. not perfect by any means. I did want to write against the tiger parent trope that mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's not real. Listen, I think a lot of writers have written that sort of relationship, um, parental relationship, because they experienced it. Mm -hmm. But I think it is just important to have a multiplicity of story. Yeah. And I know so many parents who don't have that sort of tiger helicopter, um, strict relationship with their kids. And it's like, where's that? I want to talk about that. So I wanted to show Jean, she's, she's just sort of an absent parent more than anything, because she ends up inadvertently being a single parent for so many years when Ingrid's dad goes back to Taiwan. Um, and that's something that's very common uh, that I, I didn't, you know, read a lot about either. I, I think her most interesting moment in sh when she is when she's like, why are you so mad about yellow face? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because to her, it's a non-issue. Like her stakes of her life have been rooted in survival. Right. Having food on the table, having a roof over your head, having care, access to medical care. So so to her, John Smith is a, a joke. He's a clown. She's someone she thinks is so, you know, negligible in her life. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think it is really interesting when her and Ingrid had that conversation. Ingrid is like, why aren't you outraged? Mm. And, it, and it ends up being, it's like you, because you have the luxury to be outraged because you yeah. grew up with these comforts. You can now devote yourself to certain politics to, to, you know, and I'm not saying like the only people who give themselves to a life of activism or politics ha- are, 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 have like comfortable, you know, middle-class lives. That's not true at all. But just that for Jean, it's almost like, yeah, we we did this so you can now care and be really angry about this yeah. if you're not hungry and you're not yeah cold you know, and outside. And Ingrid is sort of like, uh, like it's very hard for her to wrap her mind around. Yeah, well, and I was struck about the conversations that they have um, sort of later on in the book, in part because it just reveals how much has been left unsaid in mm-hmm. in that relationship right like how many assumptions i think both she she had about her parents and her parents had about her about like what they would understand about what was sort of available to them as far as sort of career options or or types of or different sort of ways that they could live and mm-hmm. what wasn't available i i thought especially yeah. the conversation about learning mandarin was really interesting I just, yeah, I thought the whole thing, I, th- I thought it was a really interesting conversation just as seeing like parents and children, the way, the ways that somewhat universally we don't understand each other. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Because there, there is that aspect of their relationship that's just, I haven't seen you as fully fleshed people outside of being my parents. Yeah. I think the most heartbreaking moment is realizing they went through something together without knowing it. So I think Ingrid in her head was just like, I was suffering through, you know, this sort of casual racism from my classmates and my friends all alone. How could I even begin to tell you what it was like? And this feeling that she was so isolated in that. And of course, her parents wouldn't understand. And then to realize, you know, at age 30, her parents were going through that from strangers, you know, at the supermarket, but also their own colleagues. Just sort of, you know, politely icing them out and not seeing them as, you know, friends, even though they'll they'll invite like everyone else, right, to the baby shower. The people who are still struggling with English, they completely, I I don't even think it's like a question of being, it's like that they were really mean spirited, like and and evil, like, oh, yeah, we're going to leave you out. It's like they truly could not see these immigrants who are learning the language as equal in that. Like it was just a non-question for them. They don't, they're not even invited or promoted. And that was really something that I've in my life and talking with friends that I think a lot of us have this moment where it's like, wait, you went through that too? <laughs> like with your own yeah. parents? <laughs> you know, thank you for noticing those those sort of nuanced moments with her mom and and yeah, with Wenley's character, yes. the the professor who I think Wenley's character was so interesting because she, it's not like she's sort of blind to the game the way Ingrid is in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Blinkers are off. She knows what's up. Mm-hmm. But I think for her, she has decided, I'm not here to change the system. I'm here to survive it. I'm too old and too tired <laughs> to yeah. try it. You know, she's not trying to like burn any buildings. I think she has decided like, it is unfair that the system has been thrust upon me. So I'm going to do what I can to survive and get out of it unscathed. 
Yeah. And it's like, yeah, there's something to be said for that, right? It's like, who am I to shame someone for like, well, you're not willing to like throw away your health care and just like set a federal building on fire? What kind of like bad ally? <laughs> it's like, I, I think that that is, that is also... That's right. Like, yeah, younger Vivian, that would have been her, you know, believing that. But I wanted to show there is a there's a heartbreak in Wenli's yeah. choice. And that is speaking not to Wenli as a person. And we shouldn't be used to, I think, really judge her as a person, but to judge the circumstances that have led her to, to that, 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 that she just must sort of shut up and cope. Yeah. And then um, I did want to ask you about Sushi as well. She's so fun because I think she, okay, so there's this, there's this, right, the stereotype that floats all around Asia. I wish this wasn't so pervasive. I think some people, if, because I was teaching ESL in Taiwan for a year. Mm -hmm. If you're not really privy to like this space of ESL teaching in Asia, which is so white and mm. really attracts a certain type of man. I was the only woman and Asian woman teaching at my business cram school. All my other colleagues, every single one of them was a white man. Yeah. And all of them come because they wanted a, a Taiwanese, you know, wife, girlfriend, whatnot. They absolutely have this image that an Asian woman it's actually very damaging. It's, and it's all over the internet. If you go on these terrifying forums, they believe Western feminism hasn't touched Asia. Mm. So a lot of white men who perhaps struggle with dating in America, but also struggle, I think, a lot with their masculinity and need to feel powerful and, and you know, chase that sort of like macho patriarchy. Not that there's those people aren't, they don't stay in America, but I think a lot of them are like, oh, you know, who doesn't question men, you know, who just, you know, who's naturally, you know, I put that in huge quotes, <laughs> submissive Asian woman. <laughs> and then the uh, sort of joke in the Asian community is like, then they marry an Asian woman and it's like, she will make your life a living hell. Asian women are not, absolutely not. <laughs> like, and, and it's because we're human and just like any sort of human. Yeah. It's like, of course we are can be full of rage and expectations and and, yeah yeah and there is i think this sort of you know little ongoing joke of like yeah this white guy moves to asia you know marries what he thinks is going to be this subservient wife and then she ends up she ends up dominating him and not caring about you know what what he's put on her and is just like that's absurd i'm a very strong-willed and is going to end up having him ad- adapt to her customs in her country, for example. So Sifi's character was so delightful to write and that that's what happened to Michael. He literally went like journey to a rural area of China, yeah. brought back a wife thinking this is it. And then what we see is she, she like their marriage is like a farce to her and yeah. she's sort of living her life. She has a love affair. She doesn't care about looking quote unquote feminine for him. And is just in the house, you know, uh, wearing her muumu. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that for her. I love that he was that, that his perception of an Asian was completely turned on its head. I, I hope like, to the men there in Asia right now, like still trying to find this. I hope all of it 
well, either don't succeed or, you know, if they unfortunately succeed are, well, then, you know, find out, no, your Asian wife is a real human person, fully dimensional. And uh, you're going to find out she's (laughs) not this little flower or whatever they call it, lotus. Uh, Yeah. Well, Elaine Shea Chow, thank you so much for joining me today. You can learn more about Elaine at her website, ElaineShaeChow.com, or on Twitter at ElaineShaeChow, all one word. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lemire Sammons. He also wrote our theme.